Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2 today. I'm going to apologize to you in advance. I'm going to debunk some Christmas carols today. Uh, It's not the main aim of what I'm going to try to do, but just as we make our way, you're probably going to be thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the song that I know. (laughs) So so just know that's that's coming. Last time we were in Matthew, Pastor Brent went through Matthew chapter 1, and we looked at the birth of Christ. And as we come to the end of chapter 1, we see in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, that the prophet Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be born of a virgin and that he should be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see more uh, prophecies unfold. And I think Matthew, the writing of his gospel... He was trying to show us. So in the first chapter, he showed us the family tree of Jesus, his his lineage, uh, and showed us just practically Jesus' family tree and how he came to be. The end of chapter one, and as we get into chapter two, we're going to see that he's going to show how the prophets foretold uh, the coming of Jesus. And so we see really more of a spiritual lineage unfold in chapter two. And it's it's key that, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. John in his gospel says that that the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us, that the presence of God among us. uh, And that's key to our understanding of who Jesus is and what uh, what he came to do. We're going to go to chapter 2. We're going to cover the whole chapter, so we're going to cover some ground today. But I'm just going to read the first 12 verses and then we'll pause there for a moment. So chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so we see kind of this scene unfold in the first section of chapter 2. So so we know that this was after Jesus was born, because we're told that it was after he was born, that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea and in the days of Herod the king. So we have kind of some historicity of what happened and when it took place. And then we're told that there were these wise men from the east that came to Jerusalem. And they showed up in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was kind of the hub of activity. It's kind of like if you come to Central Oregon, you're probably going to go to Bend, right, because it's the hub of activity. So, so they showed up in, in Jerusalem, the population center, and they began asking around, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, I find this kind of fascinating that foreigners showed up asking about the king of the Jews. They don't necessarily have a dog in this fight, right? They're, they're not Israelites, 
they're, they're not ethnic Jews, they're, they're foreigners, but they show up asking, where is this baby who has been born king of the Jews? And they saw some kind of a star and they came to worship him. Now, what we know about these wise men, and this is, we're getting into the debunking of some Christmas carol territory here, that, that these wise men, they were likely, not saying that they were smart men, although they probably were, they were likely astrologers. They paid attention to the stars and they saw the star in the sky and, and whatever, for whatever reason, it prompted them to follow this star uh, that led them to uh, Jerusalem. And so they have come, these foreigners, to worship this baby that has been born king of the Jews. Now, again, something kind of fascinating all throughout Old Testament history, Israel, if you know much about Israel's history, they were always oppressed. They were an oppressed people, always under somebody's thumb. Right? And the great hope of Israel, the hope of the ethnic Jew, was that one day that the Messiah was going to come, the Savior was going to come, that the Christ would come and rescue them and save them from their oppression. And so probably along with this knowledge of the foretelling of the prophets, you might imagine there's an expectation of what it's going to look like when the Messiah comes. You can imagine there might be an expectation even of, of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would do when he arrives on scene. And here we see in Matthew chapter 1, the Messiah arrived on scene, not on a horse, not with a shield, not with a sword, not ready to take names, not ready to end right there in the moment, the oppression of Israel, but the Messiah, the Christ shows up as a baby, the Messiah, God with us, right? God dwelt among us, shows up on scene as a weak and feeble baby that needed to be cared for, that needed to be fed, that needed to be changed, that needed to be attended to, in weakness, in humility, not born in a palace, right? born in, in the humblest of circumstances. And as we'll see later, even uh, after the birth had to go on the run, right, in fear of, of the lives of his family. And so these foreigners somehow figure out that the king of the Jews has been born, and they come to worship this baby Messiah. And so you, so you have that reaction from foreigners. And then you have, in verse 3 of chapter 2, Herod, who was the king, it says that he heard this news and he was troubled. Herod was troubled. Why do you suppose Herod was troubled? Right? The, the king of the Jews was troubled by the real king of the Jews. Right? Herod was king, and there was a threat to his rule and a threat to his authority, even though it was a baby, even though it was you know, someone that came in weakness and humility, Herod was threatened. His kingdom was threatened by a word of another king. And it says that he was troubled. And not only was Herod troubled, but it says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, this kind of blows my mind. Again, if you're an ethnic Jew, you've heard prophecy after prophecy after prophecy your whole life and handed down from generation to generation that one day the Messiah is going to come. And then the Messiah actually does come. Right? We can understand maybe why the king is troubled because there's a threat to his rule. But why is all of Jerusalem troubled at this news? Could it possibly be that this is, this is a little speculation? I don't like to do this, but this is a little speculation. Could, could it be that possibly in this period of history that the hope of the Israelites, the hope of the ethnic Jew was more political than it was spiritual. Maybe, just maybe, their hope was who was sitting on the temporal throne, not the eternal throne. Right? We can relate to that today because we put a lot of our hope in you know who sits in the big chair in the White House or the big chair in, in our state capitol. Right? We put a lot of hope into that, a lot of stock into that. Just maybe all of Jerusalem was troubled because they had a greater hope in Herod the king than Jesus the king. I don't know. I don't want to read too much between the lines here, but just a thought that I think is plausible. Herod was so troubled 
It says that he had assembled the chief priests and the scribes, so the religious people and the legal people. He gets them all together, gets them in a room, and he inquired of them, where is this Christ to be born? In other words, he's inquiring of the prophecies. Tell me what's supposed to go down. And so the religious people and the legal people, they told him the prophecy is that he's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Judea is out of the way, right? Kind of like where we live, you might think of kind of anything outside of Bend is considered out of the way. Like people don't come to Central Oregon necessarily to visit, uh, you know, the outer lying, you know, areas necessarily, right? Bend is kind of the attraction. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem in an out of the way place. And the religious people tell Herod that it was written by the prophet, and they're referring to the prophet Micah. We're not told that in the text, but we know that it's the prophet Micah. This prophecy of Micah that says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. So in other words, even though people consider Bethlehem to be nothing, the prophet Micah is saying, Bethlehem is not nothing, because from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It was prophesied that the Messiah, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And guess what? He was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> right? The prophet got it right. How do you know if a prophet is a true prophet? Like what they say comes to pass. Right? And so Micah, what he said came to pass. And so the religious people, the legal people tell this to Herod. They, they call his attention to the prophecy. And so then it says in verse 7 that Herod summoned the wise men secretly. I don't know why he did it in secret, but he ascertained from them what time the star appeared. So he's inquisitive to these wise men. What happened? When did you see the star? How did you get here? Those kinds of things. And it's worth noting that, that these, these wise men or these astrologers, they, they traveled probably as much as a thousand miles. We don't know exactly where they came from. They traveled a ways. And so this was a long journey. It wasn't like they just hopped in the car and took a day trip or, or hopped on a camel and, and rode a few days. This was probably, you know, multi-week, uh, maybe even months journey that these wise men took. And so Herod gets them together and he inquires of them. And so then he sends them on a mission. He's like, I tell you what, guys, the prophet Micah said Bethlehem, so go to Bethlehem. That's going to be your best bet where you're going to find this king of the Jews. And he says, go and search for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me so that I too may come and worship him. Right? Herod's threatened. Herod has no intention of worshiping this other king. Right? We know that. So he's trying to pull one over, pull a fast one on these wise men, trying to get them to do his dirty work for him uh, without them knowing it. And so the wise men departed in verse 9 after listening to the king. They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So God was leading these wise men or these astrologers. He was leading them to the Christ. And it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, these are foreigners. These are the first people to recognize the Christ, the Messiah, outside of, of Jesus' own family. And they traveled a great distance, probably at great cost to them. It probably was not a cheap journey. We'll see later that they actually brought some quite uh, lavish gifts to give to the Messiah, to the King of the Jews. But they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And so you see Herod the king, he doesn't rejoice. He's threatened. He's threatened, but these foreigners who don't even have a dog in the fight, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And they went into the house. Now, debunking another Christmas carol or two. This might have been even as much as two years after Jesus was born. This wasn't like, you know, right after Jesus was born, like some of the songs that we sing, right? Like, so it took them a while to get there. So, so this is a while after Jesus was born. They went into the house, and they saw Mary, 
his mother and they saw the child and they fell down and they worshiped him. So their, their exceedingly great joy led them even just to fall to the ground in worship of this king of the Jews. And then it says, opening their treasure, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so lavish gifts, debunking maybe another Christmas carol or two. We're, we're led to believe that there are three wise men. We're not told in the text that there are three wise men. There, there are three gifts, right? So maybe we do some deductive reasoning and think, you know, maybe three, three guys, three gifts. But likely they traveled with an entourage, right? This was likely a pretty large group of people. No, no idea how big, but, but probably more than three, right? Uh, but they give these three lavish gifts. And then kind of as this winds down in verse 12, that they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So God is speaking to them, is the idea here, not to return to Herod. And so they departed to their own country by another way. So they went back a different way they came, right? Circumvented Jerusalem, circumvented Herod, um, knowing that, that something was up. So I don't know if we've sufficiently debunked some Christmas carols at this point, but we might debunk some more as we go, right? So, so Jesus was born. These foreigners came, they came to worship him. Then we get into verses 13 to 15. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I will call my son. So the wise men had departed. They, God spoke to them in a dream. They went back home a different way. And they came, and then God comes and speaks to Joseph in a dream and basically says, Herod's after the kid. Right? Herod is so threatened at this point that he's willing to kill a baby. He's willing to kill an infant. Like Herod is becoming unhinged, it would seem. Right? This is not a normal thing uh, that somebody would do. And so God warns them and tells them to go to Egypt. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Israel has a history with Egypt. And it's not a good history. And so we don't really know what Joseph's reaction was, except that they, he did what God told him to do. But I would have to think if I'm Joseph, I might have to say, like, wait a second, did you say Egypt? You, you really want us to go to Egypt? Like, do you know the history of Egypt? But God told them to go to Egypt and to stay, not just to go there, but to stay there until Herod died. And I don't, know, I don't know how much time went by before Herod had died, but they were likely there you know, for a while. They departed to Egypt. And this was to fulfill a prophecy as well. We're not told in the text, but we know from other texts that this is the prophet Hosea, who said that out of Egypt I called my son. Now this isn't the main thrust of the text, but it's worth noting here. There's kind of a shadow here that we see of the exodus out of Egypt. Right? If, if you know the story, you know that Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They, they were oppressed by the Egyptians. And there came a point where Pharaoh of Egypt w was coming after the babies of their day. And God had provided a way for them to be saved. And God miraculously delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt while they were being chased by the Egyptians. Right? He parted the sea so they could walk across on dry land. And Hosea, as a prophet, called it, right? Hosea, he, he was a legit prophet because what he said came to pass. Out of Egypt I called my son. And he could only call his son out of Egypt if the son went to Egypt, right? And so, so in God's unfolding plan, he sends Joseph and Mary and Jesus and their family 
to Egypt so that they could exodus out of Egypt, right? So don't miss connecting some of those dots there. So that's scene two. Scene three, verses 16 to 18. And then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is so infuriated by this. Enough time had gone by that he figured out that the wise men were not participating in his plan. Don't know how much time went by, probably a while, right? Probably was not just a couple of days, probably several days or even weeks went by. And he figured out that he had been tricked by the wise men. He became so furious that he sent out an order to kill all of the male children of Bethlehem and the region that were under two years old. This is crazy. This is absolute craziness. His unhingedness continues. He continues to slide because of the threat to his kingdom of the real king of the Jews, right? He doesn't recognize it at this point, but but he recognizes enough to know that this baby who's called the Christ, this baby Messiah, is a threat to his kingdom. And he's so protective of his kingdom, so much so that he sends an order for all of the children under two years old to be killed, to be murdered. And this was a fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, right? We're not told that in the text, but we know that this is Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Appropriate response to the murdering of babies, right? Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's no comfort to be had in the murdering of children, of babies, right? And so Jeremiah foretold this. And so we know that God has a plan that's unfolding here. We believe that God is sovereign over all, meaning that he controls everything. He rules everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. He knows everything. Nothing happens anywhere outside of his watch. How could this happen? How could something like this happen? Don't know the answer for it, except that God's plan is unfolding here. And that Jesus' arrival, God stepping into human flesh, Him tabernacling or dwelling among us, God with us, has caused some ripples and people are threatened by it. Herod is troubled. All of Jerusalem is troubled. It's bad enough that Herod the king would give such an order, but also there were people that executed this order. There were people that followed through with what Herod said to do. And and so we can surmise from that that not only was Herod threatened, but other people were threatened because of the threat to Herod. And again, I've said this before, I'll say again, it, it, foreigners recognized the Christ for who he was. The people that he came directly to didn't, didn't recognize him for who he was at all. They missed it completely. But we were foretold that that was going to be the plan. And that's Act 3. We get to Act 4 in verse 19, or scene 4. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying... Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets that might be fulfilled that he would be called the Nazarene. And so we see God coming to Joseph again in a dream, telling him, giving him the all clear, it's okay to go back home. Herod had passed. His son, Archelaus, was reigning in his place. And, and Joseph wasn't cool with that. And so God told him in another dream that it's okay. To, you don't have to go back to Jerusalem. You can go uh, to Galilee. So he did. So, so we see just the obedience of Joseph, right? God speaking to him and Joseph obeying. We're not given in the text that Joseph gave any kind of pushback or anything. I, I would imagine that the news that, that he can leave Egypt, right, that, that probably was comforting news, like it's about time to, that we get to go home. So they went home. They lived in a city called Nazareth, and it references that that was spoken by the prophets, but we're not given a specific prophecy in this one. But as you can see, backing up into chapter 1 uh, at the very end, and then these kind of four scenes in chapter 2, that you know the prophet said, the prophet said, the prophet said, the prophet said, the prophet said. Right? Matthew's working to show us like this is all it's all happening according to plan. It's all happening according to what was spoken before. And so the Christ, the Messiah, did not take up residence in Jerusalem, the population center, like you might expect. His family took up residence in Nazareth, and, and just you know, reading through Scripture, you know that Nazareth was not a well thought of place, right? Somebody once said, "Can anything good even come from Nazareth?" Right? Not a well thought of place. I, I grew up in a really small town, population about three thousand when I was growing up. It's bigger now, but real small town, and that was kind of the thought: like, can anything good come out of Prineville, right? Can anything good come out of Lapine, right? These kind of small, out of the way places. This was Nazareth. Can anything good? even come out of Nazareth. And as God steps into human flesh and bones and blood, he could take up residence anywhere he wanted to. And we could probably make a pretty solid argument to like go where the people are, right? Go where the most people are. Go where the most resources are. Go where you can have the most impact. But he goes to this out-of-the-way place that nobody cares much about called Nazareth. And what does that tell you about God's heart for these out-of-the-way people that kind of get pushed to the side? Right? Not the main thrust of the text, and so I'm going to spend a lot of time on that. But that should tell us something about who God is and the people that God loves. Right? God didn't take up residence where the rich people dwelt. He took up residence where the poor people dwelt, and the unwanted and the unlovely of society. And again, all according to plan. Jesus wasn't, again, born in a palace, right? born in humble circumstances. Jesus didn't live in a palace, didn't have a, a nice waterfront house, right? Lived in a place that few other people wanted to live, around people that few wanted to be around. And he lived there. And so, so what does all this tell us? All, all of this tells us a couple of things. One, there's a plan that's unfolding here that the people have been told about over, over centuries by prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And when a key piece of the plan unfolds, Right, the Christ coming to, to dwell among us, the people by and large missed it. Even though they'd been told about this, handed down from generation to generation, from family to family, they missed it. They missed it. And I don't think we're a whole lot different today. Right? We stand up here every week and we proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we unpack the scriptures and we unpack the truth and we unpack the law and the prophets and, and all of it. And week after week, like there's people that miss it people that miss it, and I'm here today to tell you, don't miss it. 
Don't miss the advent of the Christ. Don't miss the coming of the Messiah who has and is dwelling among us, tabernacling among us. The fact that there is a plan unfolding tells us there's, somebody has, somebody holds the plan. Somebody has made the plan. Somebody's created the plan. And somebody's overseeing and executing the plan, God the Father. Right? Don't miss that. Don't, don't miss the fact that there is a plan that's unfolding. And don't miss probably the most important piece that Jesus came. He came to His people. He came to His people. And, and as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see that, that the people by and large rejected Jesus. The creation rejected its Creator by and large. And, and there's a message in here for us that, that, that we ought not reject our Creator. Right? There's something about, the Bible tells us, in Romans chapter 1, that we can just look around. We, we don't have to have a theological degree. We, we can look around at creation and we can see that there's evidence that God exists. There's evidence of, of who God is. Evidence everywhere. Right? We, we live in a beautiful place. Go look outside and tell me that God doesn't exist. Go look outside and tell me that that isn't somebody's handiwork. Right? We can react like Herod to the coming of the Messiah, and we, we can be threatened that He might interrupt my own rule and my own authority over my own life, or we can react like these wise men who, again, didn't even have a dog in the fight, but they came at great distance and great cost to fall down and worship and adore and give gifts to their Creator. They recognized something that the Jewish people themselves didn't recognize and have to believe that it's because God opened their eyes to that. We're told in 1 Corinthians that it's the God of this age, the devil, who blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So if it's the God of, of this age that blinds the minds of those who don't believe, it's the God of all ages who allows the blind to see, who gives sight to the blind. And so if you're here today and, and you've been given sight, if you've been a blind person that's been given sight, good for you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ and you haven't embraced the Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior, today is the day that He's calling you, saying, come to me and embrace me and worship me and follow me and submit your life to me and let me rule in your life and let me have authority over your life as a benevolent, gracious, loving King. And there's no threat there to that. And so as we consider this, and I just would invite you to consider that for your own life, to consider is Jesus a threat to you or is he someone for you to worship? As you consider that, we, we get to share communion this morning together, something that we get to do as, as the gathered church. We, we get to commemorate, we get to commemorate the death of Christ, right? We don't often commemorate the death of people. It's usually sad, somber occasions when people die, but, but we celebrate the death of Christ because he didn't stay dead. We celebrate the death of Christ because he defeated death and thereby conquering sin and conquering the devil. And so we get to celebrate that. And so, so we have the elements of communion, the, the broken bread representing the brokenness of Christ's body, the punishment that he took unfairly condemned in your place and in my place. And we drink the juice as the representation of the blood of Christ, which the Bible tells us cleanses us from our unrighteousness and cleanses us from our sin. And that all began with, with what we've read in these first two chapters of Matthew of, of God dwelling among us, the Word becoming flesh and making His presence known, God being with us. 
And so we get to celebrate that today. And so if you're a believer in Christ today, the communion table is for you to celebrate the death of Christ. If you're not a believer yet today, then there's nothing stopping you from submitting your life to Christ right now and celebrating your first communion because it means something. And so I would invite you to consider that as I pray for us. Father, we're grateful this morning. Grateful that you did dwell among us, that you do dwell among us, that you have stepped into human flesh, that the Creator has come to the creation who has rebelled and has made a way for us to be rescued and saved from our rebellion against our Creator. And so I would pray today that you would help us to consider perhaps things that maybe we haven't considered before, that you would help us to have uh, just a new understanding or a fresh understanding rather uh, of what you have done for us, that we would have a fresh understanding today uh, of your advent, your coming, and that you would help us um, to have a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of the truth of the gospel, a deeper understanding and knowledge of our sin and your graciousness towards us, our unrighteousness and your holiness, and that you would help grow our faith, that you would help us um, to understand more and more as time goes on the truth unpacked in the scripture. God, open up our eyes, help us to see the things that we can't see on our own, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.